You, O Lord, are enthroned forever. You are remembered throughout all generations. You will arise and have pity on Zion. It's the time to favor her. The appointed time has come. For your servants hold her stones dear and have pity on her dust. Nations will fear the name of the Lord, and all the kings of the earth will fear your glory. For the Lord builds up Zion. He appears in his glory. He regards the prayer of the destitute and does not despise their prayer. Those are verses 12 to 17 of Psalm 102, which is the psalm appointed for today, Friday, February the 18th, 2022. You're listening to Faith Seeking Understanding, and I'm your host, John Green. Thanks for being with me today. We're continuing our look at Isaiah's prophecies in chapter 65, verses 17 to 25, in um, the first epistle of Paul to Timothy, chapter 5, verses 17 to 25, and then in Mark's Gospel, chapter 12, verses 28 to 34. So it's the Lord making a declaration here. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. And we see that in um, Revelation 21, when when the new earth comes down out of heaven. But what he's saying is is that, that these things are going to be so wonderful that the other things were just going to be passed like a bad, bad dream. But be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. No more shall be heard in the, the sound of weeping and the cry of distress. This is, again, there are two um, horizons, as I've said pretty much every day probably now, that they're seeing, Isaiah is giving the promise of the return of the exiles from Babylon, but what what he's really seeing here is ultimately the fulfillment of this word awaits the second coming of the Messiah and the recapitulation of all things. No more shall there be in it an infant who lives but a few days, or an old man who does not fill out his days. For the young man shall die at a hundred years old, and the sinner a hundred years old shall be accursed. In other words, the, the lifespan, there will be such blessedness that the lifespan will be greatly increased um, in those times. They shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For like the days of a tree shall be, shall the days of my people be, and my chosen shall long enjoy the work of their hands. Now, I don't know if you remember this, but in the time of Noah, after the flood, God made a declaration that people wouldn't live beyond 120 years. It was as long as he would contend with man. And so when he's given these lifespans, when, when Isaiah is giving these words, he's thinking about that first horizon, not the second horizon, because there is no second death for those who are in Christ Jesus. And so what he's seeing is is that that the problem has been that that in the past that things could be lost. You know, through economic calamity or something else, uh like the situation now when they're in exile and other people are enjoying the land. We saw a lot of that in the first couple of times that we went to Rwanda. Uh, we saw people who, who had come back from their exile and their homes where they had grown up had been taken over the time that they'd been gone been, and chased out of the land. And so it was an odd thing for some people but coming back and, and sort of finding their rootedness again. And it was not an easy task because they mostly, I think, tried to do it with um, with grace. And, and so they, they were not reclaiming properties that had been taken from them uh, many years before. 
but it's a horrible thing to go into exile to be a, a refugee people is because you have to leave everything behind that you can't carry with you on your journey leaving and so whatever you leave behind somebody else takes over and it's i've mentioned this before that there were certain kinds of restrictions on soldiers actually somebody who was getting married somebody who just planted a vineyard or somebody who just built a house and the the purpose was to make sure in every one of those instances that the person got the fulfillment of the thing they had planned for and worked towards. So the marriage that you, you got a time off without having to serve in the military if you had recently gotten married, because th- that should be preserved, because it's something God had ordained. If you had just built a house, you should have the enjoyment of it for a season before you're separated from it because it's cost you something. It's an investment you made over time. And the same with a vineyard. You should be able to eat the produce of it before you actually have to leave it and go into the military. And so that's the the vision here is is that those prohibitions are the ones that have been shared right there. They shall not labor in vain or bear children for calamity, for they shall be offspring of the blessed of the Lord and their descendants with them. Before they call, I will answer. While they're yet speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb shall graze together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox, and dust shall be the serpent's food. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountains, says the Lord. That beatific vision is the one that, 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 if you want a vision for what does the kingdom of God look like, that's it right there. In a nutshell, it, it is everything in this peaceable kingdom. There's not, um, there's no enmity again between man and man, uh, or human beings and the animal kingdom. All these things are resolved. All the things that happened in the curse on the original creation at the time of Adam, and then again in the time of Noah, the, those things will be healed in the coming of the kingdom of God in glory. And so we will experience the blessedness of the original creation, the way it was intended to be before sin came into the situation. In the gospel today, it begins with, and one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another. This is in the temple in Jerusalem during the last week of Jesus's life. Came up and heard them disputing with one another and seeing that he answered them well, asked him which commandment is the most important of all. And so remember what we've seen so far, what we saw first with the priests primarily, who objected to Jesus throwing out the money changers and the sellers of sacrificial animals. And so they came and posed a test for him. Where did you get this authority? And then the next group were the Pharisees and the Herodians who have nothing to do with one another typically. And they asked a question about taxes. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? And and the, even though they would have disagreed, the two groups would have, on the answer to that question, it didn't really matter. It just, all they wanted was Jesus to pick a side. And so then they would be allowed to criticize him, you know. And then the final thing that happened yesterday was the Sadducees coming up and asking the silly question about the seven brothers who married the woman and whose wife would she be in eternity. So here, one of the scribes, um, one of the ones who's who's well-versed in the word and in the law, comes to Jesus and just asks a simple question, which commandment is the greatest, most important of all? And the answer to that would be actually incredibly simple, because it would it would, it all begins with God. I mean, if you just I mean, He gave us a table of one to ten, and the first was love your love the Lord your God. So so He was the one who brought them out, 
And so the first thing in the list is is going to be the most important, and that's exactly what Jesus does. But what he does is he pulls in the Shema from Deuteronomy 6, 4, the, the uh, supreme declaration of monotheism, and he says the most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. There's only one God. There's not multiple gods. And, and so it gives a coherence to um, Jewish thought that is not there in religions with multiple gods. There, there's a coherence and a clarity that can happen if you're not trying to explain this one, that one, and the other one, and then how they all interact with one another. It's like trying to figure out drug interactions, right? So so the, the supreme declaration of monotheism and the supreme declaration of Judaism is exactly that. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and all your strength. And those, that's a simple declaration. There's, those are words directly out of Deuteronomy. And so it, we're, we're, we're told to recognize that he is one and then to love him for his oneness and in his oneness. Those things go together. But then he goes on to say, and he, we, nobody asked him this, but he said the second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There's no other commandment greater than these. And so those things would be, um, they, they'd still have to be unpacked. Um, and, and that's what there's what what the guy asked him to do essentially was condense everything down and and make it as simple as possible, which is a typical rabbinic way of looking at things is to say, can we make it simpler than that? And so you make it as simple as that for people, and then but there's still got to be content to loving your neighbor. What is the loving thing in X situation or Y situation or Z situation? And then not only that, but who is my neighbor? And that's the question that prompts him to give, tell the parable of the Good Samaritan is he there's a man who's been beaten and that's all we know he's a man who's been beaten we don't know if he's a jewish man a samaritan man a roman man whatever we don't have any earthly idea and the point of the story of the good samaritan at the end of it jesus says who is the neighbor and the answer is i guess the one who did him good so neighbor you don't define neighbor you define neighbor as anybody who needs my help who comes into my path so it doesn't matter who that person is. And that was Jesus' whole point was, I'm not going to give you any details about this man. Because otherwise you would, you would say, oh, he's, he's my neighbor because he's a Jewish man. He's my neighbor because he lives in this area. But Jesus doesn't give us any of that. This guy could be a complete stranger and a traveler. We don't have any earthly idea. But he's the neighbor because you see his situation and you're able to do something about it. Whether that's, you know, I, hey, I don't have the finances to help with this, but I, I can go get somebody. I can help this guy one way or another. That what we see in, his, in the story, in the parable, is the Jewish people just keep walking past. And then the Samaritan man stops and helps him. And, and it's important that we pay attention to these things. And like I said, so, so Jesus boils it all down. That would all have to be expanded. What does it mean to love? Well, it means not coveting. It means not murdering. It means not bearing false witness. It means all these things. But... <clears throat> The, the important thing is, is that why are those two things linked together? And the reason they're linked together is because first you love God, and then you love those who are created in his image. And in doing those things, then you're loving God both ways. Ultimately, you're loving God by loving those who are created in his image. You're valuing his image on the earth by loving your neighbor. And, and it doesn't matter who that neighbor is because all are created in the image of God. And the scribe said to him, you're right, teacher, you've truly said that he is one and there's no one besides him. 
and to love him with all the heart and understanding and strength and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, he said to him, you're not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. So everybody's kind of taking a run at him. Every group that we know of has taken a, a, a run at Jesus here in the temple this day. And ultimately what happens is the scribe says, wow, that is well said. And he understood what Jesus had said. And, the, and so he recognizes Jesus as somebody who truly knows and understands the law because you have to know the law and then have the wisdom to boil it down the way Jesus did. And, and to not lose anything in the work of boiling things down, because sometimes we can make things so simple that they're no longer true, or they no longer have any meaning. And Jesus distilled everything in the way that only the lawgiver could. <laughs> uh, he knows from the inside out what the intention was for the law. So in the epistle, Paul's sort of finishing up his uh personal um, recommendations for how to run the church in Ephesus. He said, let the elders who rule be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. So the people, he says, who, who are truly valuable are those, who, and I don't mean that the others are not as valuable, but what, what he's holding up is not the people, but the principle. And the principle is those who teach and preach are worthy of, of great honor. And James will say nobody should take that upon himself because there's, there's also a great risk in taking on the work of preaching and teaching because you, you need to be able to accurately and rightly divide the Word of God. And it's important to do that. And Paul says it's the most important thing the church needs is the preaching and the teaching of the Word. It needs all the other things as well, but we can get to a place where we're just doing things. And we call them good because, well, it makes us feel good, and and the world applauds us for doing those things. But what Paul says is that if you don't do those things for the glory of God, it doesn't really matter that you've done them. They they carry no weight or merit at all. And so the, the reason to do all things is for the glory of God, not just to be active and involved in doing things. And so that's why he elevates the preaching and the teaching of the Word above everything else. And there's nothing more important in the church than that. There's just no way around it. There's nothing more important than that the people of God know the Word of God, whether that's the written Word of God or the Word of God, Jesus Christ, and that they follow him. That's the, those are the things that, that the church was given to do in the Great Commission. And so that's the reason that Paul can say these are the most valuable things is because that's the stuff, the work that fulfills the Great Commission. For the Scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain and the laborer deserves his wages. What he's talking about is make sure those people get paid for what they do. It's not wrong for them to get paid to preach and teach. Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses, because it's easy to slander somebody. I mean, I've seen it done a million times. I've seen it done in churches and everything else, that people will come and, and they'll say something um, just because they don't like the person, or they'll blow something out of proportion and come at it that way. And, and we have to be careful about that. If we've raised people up in, a, in the right way, then we should, we should have been careful about what we did before we ever put them in the eldership positions, and, and therefore we should trust and respect them at a level that gives them the benefit of the doubt unless we have multiple accusations or multiple people can back up what they've said. 
As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all, so that the rest may stand in fear. Now, nobody does that. We just don't see that done very often in the church, where people are, are rebuked because they're continuing in sin. You know, I've seen it in, in different contexts that we just let things go. I mean, I had somebody one day say to me, because well, I had actually rebuked somebody, um, by making them step down from being the treasurer, and the person came to me and said, well, you know, that's just how... Steve, let's call him, is. Well, is that correct? Is it okay to be like that? No. Well, the problem is people have just put up with this and and let him continue to live in what, what everybody would agree is wrong and sinful ways. And so when you rebuke them, when you say you're going to have to step down from that role, it comes as a complete shock to them, sends them into apoplexy and anger and writing letters to your bishop every single week. But, but it also shocks people who have become accustomed to saying things, well, that's just how Steve is. And in spite of the fact that everybody knows that's not the way Steve ought to be. So it, it's, it's usually a problem. It creates big problems to rebuke people like that. But the reality is, is, is that we need to be clear what sin is in our midst. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. And it's very difficult to, to not do that. It's, it's difficult because we want to think the best of the people we're closest to. And if they're in a dispute with somebody else, then we're apt to lean in on that side. <laughs> and so that's what, that's what Paul is saying. Always keep an open mind and always be, be willing to, to change your mind. In, in in the evidence, uh, in, in the uh, in the light of of evidence, then we need to be able to change our mind. And I've certainly seen it where I was just shocked and stunned that people that I respected and loved had acted badly in certain situations. And it, just, it, it can be heartbreaking. But we we just have to be clear, and we have to always be willing to hear it because we know ourselves to be capable of so much. Then then we need to to be willing to hear it, but we need to be careful. And we need to not have an idea in mind from the beginning. Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands to raise people up in leadership, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourselves pure. No longer drink only water, this is parenthetically, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. So Timothy apparently was predisposed to certain kinds of uh, bodily ailments. And Paul says, don't just drink water. Take a little wine for that too. The sins of some people are conspicuous, going before them to judgment, but the sins of others appear later. And, and that's absolutely true. It's just that some people do things so publicly <laughs> that, that we know their sins, but we are all sinners and have fallen short of the glory of God. And so whether those things are hidden or revealed, you know, sooner or later everybody gets your number. <clears throat> and God always has it. So also good works are conspicuous, and even those that are cannot remain hidden. So it, it just... Keep your nose to the grindstone. Keep working and doing the things that you're supposed to do. And God, you'll see the blessing of God on your ministry in one way or another. And so he's telling him to stay at the work that he was given to do and the, and the prophetic word about what he was to do. Stay at that. Keep at it. Keep moving and keep loving. That's the whole thing is just love God, which is to love his word, teach his word and preach his word and love others. And that is in this way that he's saying, show, don't show partiality to people. Don't, don't let one person make an accusation against somebody. And so it's, it's loving people by, being, by the way that we lead them. And it's important 
in the church and in life generally that we carry out our leadership in that way.